0: in the north of Israel. In fact, it's about as far north as you can get in the modern state of Israel before hitting the Lebanon-Israel border. Well, what is this place? It's called Tel Dan. Maybe you've heard the Bible mention all of Israel from Dan to 'er Beersheba. That's the Dan the text is referencing. It's Israel's northern border. In other words, it's saying from the north to the south of Israel. That's all of Israel. And Beersheba, which we'll go visit soon, is the southern border. Now at Dan, there's some really interesting history and archeology, span including evidence for the biblical King David. So I'm super excited to get there and start showing you all around. We have a bit of a drive ahead of us though. We've been touring around Mount Gerizim, which is the home of the Samaritans. And as we've learned, the Samaritans are still a people that exist today. They have similar practices to the Jews, But they certainly wouldn't want to be called Jews, and nor would Jews wish to be called Samaritans. But anyways, we've been there and we've done that. But, But Tel Dan is about two and a half hours from Mount Gerizim. So this gives us a good amount of time to talk about the history of Tel Dan. Let's hop on in the bus and start making our way up to the north of Israel. Feel free to close your eyes and listen or enjoy the scenery. I know we've already had a long day. Well, tell Dan. There's so much to cover. But let's start with the obvious, the name, Dan. Now, at first, that sounds like the nickname for a guy named Daniel, like one of my brothers. But think about the Old Testament tribes of Israel. Remember the one named Dan? Well, the book of Joshua tells us that after the Israelites conquered Canaan, the land was split between the tribes of Israel. They all took different sections. And the tribe of Dan was the last to get apportioned land by a lot. And they actually got a pretty small section. It was right on the coast. So they had a great view of the Mediterranean. But there was a problem. They soon had even less land than the small section they began with. Because the Philistines, a powerful enemy, you may recognize the name. Well, well, they came along and they conquered land from the tribe of Dan. So Judges 19 says that the people of Dan went up and fought the Canaanites for this city, which was named Lashem. They conquered it. And they renamed it to Leshem Dan, after the name of Dan, one of Israel's sons, whom the tribe is named after. So that's how the name Tel Dan came to be. Wow, that drive passed quickly. You know, there's nothing like looking out the window and knowing that you are in the Holy Land. Driving around Israel, even for just three hours, is certainly better than the desolate I-95 in the U.S. It's a road I seem to end up on often. Well, let's hop out and begin our tour around Tel Dan here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Tel Dan today is a beautiful nature reserve, along with being an archaeological park. But in fact, families will come here for the day to enjoy some hikes and time in nature, splash in the natural pools on a hot day, and enjoy all the greenery. While it's also a very popular site for tourists, I think it's cool that many locals will choose to spend a day here. Isn't this beautiful? I mean, I mean, just look around. I feel like we're in a rainforest. At some points on the walk, the taller people among us, I'm not one of them, but you guys will have to bend down to actually pass under tree branches. It's going to be an adventure. You can probably start to hear some of the rushing water. And that water was once snow on top of Israel's highest mountain, Mount Hermon which we'll see when we get to our first stop. We're certainly not going to hike up it, but we will be able to see it in the distance. So the water from Mount Hermon melts and flows down to the Dan Spring next to Tel Dan. And that spring is the largest of the four sources of the Jordan River. And that's another reason there's so much greenery in this area of Tel Dan. All the water makes it extremely fertile. You can see why this would have been such a desirable place for people to conquer and then settle one of the main things needed in any ancient settlement was a water source. And as we look around, Tel Dan has more than enough of that. Watch your step here, we have to cross over a stream, but they haven't built us a nice bridge like we've come across before. They are just stones that we have to step on to get across. And since we're still in a shady area, in this sort of rainforest, the sun can't help dry the stones. So the stones tend to get very wet and slippery as more and more people come into to Dan throughout the day. So please be careful. I've been here a number of times and have uh, <laughs> seen some unfortunate accidents on these rocks. You know, there was that one time the brand new iPhone went into the water. That was a sad one to watch. Okay, nice. I love a safe water crossing. You, my virtual voyagers, are a good group. Well, now we're coming out into the sun again. Sorry, hats have to go back on, maybe take a second to reapply some sunscreen, but wasn't that a beautiful walk? Come around here and and take a seat. Unfortunately, there's no shade here. This is a spot that every tour guide hates to take groups to. Well, I should say that every tour guide knows it's a spot people need to see because it's so cool. But it can get painful if we stay too long just baking in the sun. Right in front of us is a brown structure covered by a canopy, and there's also an arch there. But it doesn't look all that exciting. I mean, sure, it looks old, but so does almost everything in Israel. But this, my friends, just happens to be a 4,000-year-old mud-brick gate that Abraham himself walked through. Yes, you heard that right. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, walked right through that gate that you're standing in front of now. And if that isn't good enough, the arch you see as part of the mud brick structure is the oldest arch in the world. I'm getting really excited because, well, this spot is the literal jackpot. Now, we rarely find mud brick structures that survive from this time period because anytime it rains, mud brick dissolves. Well, we know the people who built this gate did a few things to mitigate such a problem. First, they would have put a layer of of stone underneath the mud bricks, so that the wall wouldn't dissolve from underneath when rain came or the ground was damp. We also know that they would have put plaster on the outside of the bricks to prevent the bricks dissolving, but the plaster certainly would have worn off eventually. So at this point you should still be wondering why in the world is this gate still standing 4,000 years later? Well the only real way to preserve mud brick is to bury it, And this gate was, in fact, buried thousands of years ago and only unearthed in more recent decades by archaeologists who have taken great care with it. And that's why there's that huge canopy over top of it to prevent any rain from getting on the gate. And of course, we can't get super close to it or go inside of it, we're kind of kept back here. So we just enjoy it from a few dozen meters back and hopefully this site will be open to the public for years to come but it's always a risk to have mud brick exposed in the open like this, even with the canopy on top of it. So a day may come when this gate has to actually be buried again, when it has to go back under dirt just in order to preserve it. It would be sad, but it would also be the only way to truly save the gate. Something special from the biblical record also happened here at this gate. If you remember from the book of Genesis, Abraham left his homeland and went by faith to the land God was going to show him, the land of Israel. We also learn that Abraham's nephew, Lot, went with him to the new land. But both Abraham, or at this time he was still called Abram, Abraham and Lot had a ton of animals, and and some of their herdsmen of the two flocks got mad at each other, so Abraham and Lot decided to separate. So Abraham lets Lot choose which part of the land he wants, And Lot chooses what he believes to be the best, most fertile part of the land, in in kind of a selfish move. And then Abraham takes the other part. But God assures him it will be okay. Well, some time goes by and and some wars happen. In case you haven't been able to tell, people were always at war during this time. And Lot, who has been living in Sodom at the time, is taken by an enemy of Sodom. Someone comes and tells Abraham of this, that his nephew has been captured. Let's take a second to read from Genesis 14 because we are standing in the place where this happened. Then one who had escaped, that is from being captured by the enemy of Sodom who took Lot, someone escaped there. Then the one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anna, These were allies of Abram, so side note, Abraham already has some people on his side, and that's helpful in a time like this to have allies. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And to get into Dan, just as another note, Abraham would have gone through this exact gate. So cool. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, a lot with his possessions, and the woman and the people. Okay, that is wild to me. That story happened on the ground that our own feet are standing on right now. Abraham had to likely pass through this exact gate when trying to rescue Lot and he was ultimately successful in that in that endeavor and that's why this gate is often called Abraham's Gate. I'm so happy we got to see it. Let's get out of the sun and head to our next stop at Tel Dan here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Now we're heading into the ancient city of Dan. Let's enter in through this gate. Now, here we're allowed to walk through the gate because you'll notice it's made of stone. There's no fear of a tourist accidentally causing the structure to crumble like there is with Abraham's mud brick gate. Check this out. Immediately inside the gate of the city of Dan is a a seat. And this is where the king would have sat to hear the people's complaints and issue orders, issue judgments, kind of sit as a ruler and sit as a judge. We know from other texts that it would have been common for the king or elders to sit at the entrance of the gate of the city to do this, to make judgments or hear matters. It's so interesting to take a look around here and imagine what the structures might have once looked like. I know, I, I know. it looks unimpressive now, it appears to be a pile of stones. But once this city gate complex would have been bustling with people coming and going from the city, and, and vendors selling things, and the king or elders issuing proclamations or handing down judgments. Let's continue up the slope to the top of the city, where we're going to have a little history lesson. Remember that King Saul and King David ruled a united kingdom of Israel. From the north to the south, all of Israel was one. And the same was true for, for King Solomon. He also ruled a united kingdom. But trouble befell Israel following Solomon's death, in part due to his sin. The book of Deuteronomy, which is part of the Torah, the books of of the law for the Jews, well, it has prescriptions for how Israel's kings are supposed to act. Specifically, chapter 17 of Deuteronomy says that the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away from God nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Well, 1 Kings tells us that Solomon loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he's already disobeyed what God prescribes for a king in one area. But also note that he levied heavy taxes on the people, 1st Kings 10 says that he collected 666 talents of gold from the people each year. That is a ton of money for a small nation like Israel. So Solomon disobeyed the prescription also in Deuteronomy by acquiring excessive silver and gold that he should not have taken from the people. And for his disobedience, there had to be punishment. God speaks through the prophet Ahijah in 1st Kings 11, that the nation of Israel would be divided. No longer would the house of David rule all the tribes. No longer would there be a united kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam, a man not of the house of David, in fact, he's a servant of Solomon, is told that he would be given 10 tribes of Israel to rule. But for the sake of David, who when he was alive kept God's commandments, God would not completely tear the kingdom from the line of David. David will always have a lamp before God in Jerusalem, the Bible says. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, gets to keep Judah with the capital city of Jerusalem. Ultimately, this is also necessary for the coming of the Messiah. We know Jesus comes from the house and lineage of David, from the line of Judah. Take the prophecy of Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land or even go back as far as jacob's blessing on judah before his death in genesis 49 the scepter shall not depart from judah so if god were to destroy the line of kings of the house of david the prophecy couldn't come true although all the human kings of israel even david a man after god's own heart Although they all fail in some way or another, God promised that the Messiah would be a king who would do what is right and just in the land of Israel, unlike the human kings. And that is exactly what Jesus came and did. He was the perfect man, the Son of God, and the sacrifice for the sins of man. Jesus died for the sins of David, Solomon, and Rehoboam just as much as he died for the sins of you and me. Although he was perfect, Jesus took the sin that we deserve to pay for with eternity in hell. He took that on him, and he promises eternal life to anyone who believes. Everything in the Bible masterfully connects, my friends, and that is one of the things I find great joy in as we are here in Israel, seeing the Bible come to life. But back to this split kingdom of Israel. Now there's the southern kingdom of Judah with the capital city of Jerusalem, and that's ruled by Rehoboam. And then there's the northern kingdom of Israel, ruled by Jeroboam. But all the Jews, even the ones living in Israel, the northern kingdom, would go to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. They needed to go there on pilgrimages and to make sacrifices. But that also meant that the southern kingdom got a lot more revenue. I mean, think about it. When the people went to Jerusalem, they had to pay to stay somewhere. They had to buy food and maybe they got souvenirs. So money was going into the southern kingdom, but not the northern one. Jeroboam, king of the northern kingdom, sees that there's a problem. He says in 1 Kings 12, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam. So out of fear of losing his kingdom, Jeroboam does exactly what God says not to do. God says that Jerusalem is the city where he has chosen to put his name. That's where the people are to go to sacrifice, even if they have to travel all the way from the north in Dan down to Jerusalem. There is one true temple where God dwells. But Jeroboam sins and leads the people into sin by building alternate temples in Bethel and Dan. Come over here and look, as we are here at Tel Dan. I know right there you just see a pile of stones. But this is believed to be the location of Jeroboam's alternative place of worship to God. And just behind you is a pit. Look over there. It actually farther confirms this. Archaeologists have found a lot of animal bones from animals that would have been sacrificed here. And then their bones would have been dumped in that pit. But there's also something worse about this so-called temple That Jeroboam builds. It's not just a place for worship to God, to the one true God. Worse, it's also to other gods. He brings out golden calves and tells the people to behold their gods who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Plural, gods. That's really bad. So Jeroboam leads the people astray and leads them away from worshiping the one true God. And now instead of the people going to God's one prescribed place for worship, the temple in Jerusalem, They're also running off to Bethel and Dan to worship not the one true God, but also gods. It's a disastrous mess, and it literally started here. You, virtual voyagers, are looking at the archaeological remains of Jeroboam's temple. From here on out, if you know the accounts in Kings and Chronicles, it's awful for Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Idol worship, bad kings, disobedience to God— And ultimately the northern kingdom was exiled by Assyrian kings and the rest of the Jews from the southern kingdom also went into exile at the hands of the Babylonians who also destroyed the first temple, Solomon's temple. It was a sad ending. But of course, God's covenant with Israel, that promise he made, is an everlasting one. Even the awful kings, the people's disobedience, and their being sent into exile couldn't destroy it. God always keeps his promises. We even see it today with so many Jews returning to the land of Israel, their homeland. There's a lot of hope there. Well, there's a lot to see here at Tel Dan, but we're out of time for now. So we'll pick up right here next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Virtual Voyage, the Armchair Travel Show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue to explore Tell Dan and look at the only extra-biblical evidence for King David from the Bible.